Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with pianist, educator, and music psychology researcher Adina Mornell, who is currently a professor and chair of instrumental and vocal music education at the University of Music and Performing Arts in Munich, Germany. In today's episode, Adina will unpack the four components of performance anxiety, explain what fundamental change she'd love to see in music pedagogy, and share details from two studies that can help us not only practice more effectively, but could facilitate more enjoyable performances as well. So growing up, I studied with a number of different people, but a woman named Maria Gysi was my primary teacher through most of my formative years, Mm -hmm. who incidentally was an Oberlin grad as well. Okay. And so, you know, reflecting on my lessons with her, the older I get, the more I appreciate how remarkable a person she really is. But even as a kid, there are certain things that definitely stood out to me. One of them was the fact that she had her pilot's license, which I don't think I knew anybody else who had Mm -hmm. ever had a Mm -hmm. pilot's license. And I remember her mentioning to me once that there were a lot of similarities that she found between flying and playing the violin. But I don't know that I had the presence of mind as, you know, like an eight or 10 year old to ask her what she meant by that or Mm -hmm. to have her elaborate on that in any way. So when I learned that your dissertation involved applying aviation psychology to stage performance, I was very much intrigued and thought this might be a really interesting place to begin our chat. The first thing I thought maybe I'd ask is, is I don't know if I know what aviation psychology even is. I wonder if I could just ask you to say a little bit about what that is and and then how it relates. Be happy to. The amazing thing about aviation psychology is that it's not about uh, finding out who did something wrong, but it's about learning from experience for the future. So what I did was I looked into how accidents or near misses, which are much more productive, by the way, how aviation psychologists... Uh, go out to the scene, look at the bent metal, or interview everybody, or give out questionnaires to find out what kind of mental state people were in, what kind of physical state they were. And they gather all of this information in order to find out what happened. But their main goal, and that's what I find so fascinating, that's what makes it completely different than music, is um, it's always our fault. You know, you're on stage, something goes wrong, a sound doesn't sound good, or you feel as if you're not performing your best. And 
when you get off stage, there's no one else to blame except you. And there's usually no one there who's going to give you an honest opinion about what actually happened. And in aviation, it's completely different. It's not about saying person A did something wrong. That's what happened. It's about what are the human traits? What are the human errors that led to this sequence of events that caused this near miss or this accident? And I found that absolutely fascinating. And I am not a pilot, but my husband is a private pilot. And I just remember some morning sitting at the kitchen table and thinking about this enormous difference between the security you have when you get into a small airplane or a commercial jet that you're going to land. And I just had this image of what would it be like if the pilot was standing next to the airplane when you were getting on and would be saying to you, well, we have a so 50% chance that we're going to land safely. Nobody would get on that airplane. But when you ask musicians before a performance, you know, how is it going to go? How do they feel? Are they confident or whatever? You usually get sort of a 50-50 answer. Like, I think I've done enough preparation. I could have done more. I'm not really sure. Sometimes you get, I'm not feeling quite right today. People start to build excuses up before the performance so they won't be letting you down later. And I find this absolutely at the core of what we should be doing, both as musicians and as music teachers. And that is finding out what will make musicians it's called the bulletproof musician. What will make musicians bulletproof? What is it that we as musicians need to do or to teach our students to do so that they feel just as confident as an airplane pilot is? If I can use that analogy, you know, we, we go up in the air in our performance and we want to be able to enjoy the time up there and we want to be able and, you know, see the clouds, <laughs> uh, enjoy the sunshine and we want to land safely and we want everybody else to land with us. You know, this phrase to enjoy the time up there. I don't think is one that we necessarily think very deeply about in the equation of performing. But I think given hopefully where this conversation is going to go with some of the other research you've done, I think that's a really important phrase to keep in mind because part of what I think helps us enjoy our time up there is also related to what we do in the practice room, what we think about while we're on stage, and, and even results in a better outcome. But even before we go there, Tell me more about some of the things that relate to, it almost sounds a little bit like what I've read about these so-called um, pre-mortems, like figuring out all the things that could go wrong in advance and trying to prepare in specific ways so those aren't as much of a stress when you perform. I mean, is that a little bit what this is about or is it kind of a different thing? I would say it's different in the sense that I try to emphasize not only that it's important to analyze what happened on stage in the past tense, but looking forward to what's going on, I think it's also important to remember what went right. And I've done a lot of workshops with musicians where I've had them question themselves with questionnaires. I took that from aviation psychology beforehand about um, how they're feeling, what they're thinking, what their preparation was like, whether they really did everything they thought they could to perform. And then I asked them afterwards, not because anybody can do that. Anybody can mark the score afterwards and say what went wrong. But I asked them to, to identify what went right. Because unfortunately, we're so used to avoiding mistakes that we don't use that resource that we have ourselves, which is something actually went right, something I actually enjoyed on stage, something sounded different to me. I was able, classical musicians don't get to improvise, but I was able to improvise within the score on stage because I was inspired. Those moments they get overshadowed by this frustration of, well, I didn't hit that note in the fourth bar of the second theme or something. And I find it so frustrating, too, because 
and I know I'm, I'm going off ta- on a tangent, but I think this is so important. When I worked with uh, musicians and I had them record the concert, mark the score afterwards with where the, did they think it went well and where did they think it went poorly, oftentimes you find out that the mistakes they heard didn't actually happen. Now, why is that? That's because when we practice, and this is somewhere I'm sure that we'll get to, when you practice and all you're doing is making sure that it runs well or you avoid mistakes or there's a measure where you've played a wrong note before, so you're doing all of this, don't play that note, don't play that G, don't play that G, it's really an F sharp. Your brain has this enormous picture, mental representation, of the wrong note and just a small little picture of the right note. So it's no surprise that when adrenaline is flowing through your body, your brain is hyperactive. Your brain is accessing the wrong note instead of the right note. So I'm going to draw a broader circle and say, although my dissertation was about applying aviation accident analysis to performance, one of the major things that I discovered in all of my work previously on stage fight and then through this work with aviation psychology is that we musicians blame everything that goes wrong on stage, on stage fright. And of the hundreds of studies that I looked at years ago for my meta-study that I did about stage fright, I found out that very rarely, if not almost never, did researchers ask musicians beforehand whether they were confident that they could play well. So I've broadened my scope, and although I do teach classes and workshops about coping with stage fright, I'm much more excited about teaching musicians how to practice, which I know you are also doing through your uh, website, podcasts, and workshops, and so on, because it's just too easy an excuse to say, it didn't go well because it was too hot in the hall, or I would have had more time to practice, but my cat got sick and I had to go to the vet. You know, there are thousands of ways in which we find excuses for what happened on stage without actually going back and saying, well, was I really in the position to play as well as I can? Yeah, there's a tendency, I mean, even for myself growing up, I always felt like I was underachieving on stage and nothing was ever nearly as close as what I thought it could have been or should have been. And and I always assumed that I just needed to practice more, but it's a little bit more nuanced and complex and just adding more time into the equation. And it reminds me of a quote, I don't remember where it came from, but something about how in performance or under pressure, we don't rise to the occasion so much as we fall to the level of our preparation. There's some really detailed questions that I'm curious about. So for instance, when looking at what went well and what went poorly from the recording of your performance, A, it presumes that you're recording the performance, which I think as a kid, I would have resisted doing because I wouldn't have wanted to listen back. But do you write down what you think went well and what you think went poorly even before listening in the example that you gave? Or does that come after or both? I think it's very important to, after the concert, to take a snapshot of what did I feel happened so that over time I can learn to actually hear what's going on so that I can differentiate between what was the expectation and what was the actual hearing. It's a highly complicated process, as you know, when we're on stage. We are hearing what's going to happen next. We are correcting what happened before. We're sort of in three different time zones at the same time. You know, we're in the future, we're in the past, and we're in the present. And I had a a sound engineer in Berlin who told me that as part of his education, his teacher at the engineering school had them listen over earphones to their own voice speaking, but with a delay so that they were hearing themselves twice just to understand what musicians go through. And that's just a, you know, a fraction of what's going on. 
But as I said, with time, if you practice not going into denial, I mean, how many times have I said to an audience of musicians, what do we do after a concert usually? Well, we shake everybody's hand and try to keep on a good face and smile. And then we go to have a big drink, right? Which, of course, doesn't help us because we've got so much adrenaline in our system that it would take quite a lot of alcohol to actually offset that. But what happens is denial. And going back to aviation psychology, denial would not help us worldwide to avoid accidents. And as you probably know, it's safer to be up in an airplane than it is to walk along the street or ride a bike or be in a car. So given that same safety standard and trying to apply it to musicians, we really need to get honest with ourselves about what did we actually do to prepare? How many excuses have we consciously and unconsciously built in? And to go back to something you said, also when we go on stage, are we just there to count how many mistakes we make? Are we able to differentiate be between practice where I'm trying to learn a piece and it's important to hear where I could get better and a performance stage where I'm trying to be in the music and to express something, communicate with the audience where music is more than just a sum of lots of right notes. Right. Two qualitative, qualitatively different tasks and challenges and, and mindsets for each. Is there a particular process? Let's take somebody who is preparing for an audition, for instance. Is there like a particular step-by-step -step process that one might go through in terms of trying to utilize uh, what you found that happens in aviation? Absolutely. The, the basis of aviation accident investigation is looking at all the evidence. And so I have students, first of all, I... Uh, teach them the basic, what I believe is the basics of how the brain works on stage, which are the four components of stage fright. So we're talking about physiology, behavior, cognition, and emotion. And with those four categories, I have them not only monitor that while practicing, but also uh, fill out questionnaires in advance so that they start to see what is my personal recipe for excitement on stage. I try to talk not about anxiety or, or fear or fright. I try to talk about activation. What is that positive energy that I've got on stage and what am I doing with it? And each one of us has a different way of channeling it. So I think it's really important to, to know that this is a complex process. Uh, and the most important thing is to say, okay, I'm willing to take the, the microscope to my own state of being and find out what is really my problem. Is Maybe my problem isn't shaky hands or sweaty feet or a beating heart. But I've always thought those are the, the superficial signs of, of activation on stage, so I've always thought those were the problems. The problem could be somewhere completely different. The problem could be failing to visualize what it would be like to be successful. Now, I know I'm jumping to something that, that's a rather odd topic, but I think it's so important. We practice being mediocre in everyday life. I mean, we want to fit in. We want to have friends. We don't want to be that snobby person who's, you know, the one who's getting all the first prizes and whatever. We're, we're basically trained through childhood and through the studies and through our friendships and through our colleagues, even working in an orchestra, to sort of blend in. And now we're on stage and we're supposed to be an egoist. We're supposed to think about ourselves. We're supposed to be proud of ourselves. And this is so counterintuitive if we spent our life fitting in, trying to get along with people, trying to make friends. So I think it's really important to know, and I believe that I can say this after so many years of working with musicians around the world, we do so much worrying about mistakes and so much 
fearing whatever failure is, fearing that something catastrophic will happen, that we don't do enough time, don't spend enough time or spend enough energy imagining what it would be like to play well, and then making decisions in our practice that would lead us down that path of optimal performance. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit on on that, but specifically maybe through each of the four components. So what is the behavioral component of stage pride or the physiological component? And then even within each of those, what are some potential ingredients for working on that in advance or strengthening that particular area? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Well, I'm going to start with physiology because that's what everybody knows. The shaky hands, the we call it butterflies in the stomach, but it's not in the stomach, it's behind the stomach. You know, all of this activation when adrenaline is flowing through the body. The physiological component is, of course, that basic animalistic instinct, fight or flight response. And that's the easiest one, of course, to identify and the easiest one to teach because we have this really neat list of symptoms. And what I found over the years is that the biggest problem is that music teachers do not talk about this. You know, it's sort of a sink or swim attitude because most, I don't want to, I'm sure there are great teachers out there, but all of the teachers that I had never talked about stage fright. It was just something, you know, just they hoped that it would go well. And unfortunately for little kids, I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but I think it's important. You know, a little child, you know, a four-year-old, five-year-old gets up on stage, adrenaline kicks in and they play better. And then we sort of get addicted to this idea that, oh, we just need the right excitement and then things are going to go better. Instead of saying that's a phenomenon that's relatively limited to kids up until puberty, right? So these physiological symptoms aren't discussed in regular lessons and learning to identify them and rename them and say, this activation that I'm experiencing, this cold hands, women's bodies lose multiple degrees in body temperature due to the fight or flight response, the cold hands, the shaking, the dry mouth, all of these things. Those are great signs. They mean my body is healthy. They mean my body is reacting to the exceptionalism of this situation. And they are giving me the ability to play my best. That's, of course, what athletes do. If you're about to take a a jump on your skis, you are thinking about how wonderful it is that you have this adrenaline and you're not thinking about, oh boy, my knees are shaking. I'm not going to make it. So in all of these symptoms that we have, we can say, I want to welcome them. And that's basically the difference, whether it's an athlete or whether it's a musician, the difference between those who do well and those who are victims of their own symptoms is to say, I welcome these. And to answer your question, one of the most important things is to visualize the performance the day before and to allow the symptoms to rear their ugly heads to feel that excitement beforehand because and this goes back to studies in the 60s with parachutists because that way I can prevent those spikes of adrenaline from influencing my behavior and I can also make sure that the overall level of excitement is kept to a minimum. So for the physiological component, it's a lot about understanding why I feel the way I feel and that it's healthy and that it's normal and that everybody has this whether they discuss it or not or whether they go into denial afterwards, and that with the knowledge about it and with the proper preparation and, most importantly, facing up to these symptoms and saying, I need them, it's not something I want to get rid of, then we can deal pretty well with that. The cognitive component, which is what am I thinking, or I call it the self-talk on stage, it's hard not to crack. 
to figure out what are those negative thoughts that I'm thinking of, that I'm accessing when my brain is is just full of excitement and the blood is flowing and I'm activating memories that I haven't thought about in a long time because of this overexcitement. And where are they coming from? Are these views about myself that from the age of four, when people have made suggestions about how I am and who, my, who I am or, or early experiences, or I like to point out that we are very strange species, we humans, because we store everything negative in high definition. <laughs> so you ask somebody about a bad performance, and I'm sure they have an example, right? You ask somebody about when was the last time they were insulted or somebody said something that they did wasn't right, they'll be really fast about it. But ask somebody to recall their best performance, or when was the last time somebody said something nice to them or paid them a compliment, it's going to be hard for them to remember. And this is, of course, based on our biology or because we've been programmed, hardwired, and, and have the software to survive as a species. And that means learning from bad experiences. And unfortunately, positive experiences don't have that uh, sort of value in terms of survival. So I talk about this in my classes and, in, and with my students and say, well, we have to learn that it's important to spend time savoring and storing the good things that happen to us, the positive memories. And with time, and I actually use a stop sign, a mental stop sign, with time you can learn not only on stage but in practice to stop extraneous thoughts, to stop negative thoughts, to stop undermining yourself with worries about the future and say, stop, I love this piece. It always has to be replaced by something positive. And that can become something that's just as automated as shaking your head when you've played a wrong note. This is about substituting the programs, the programs that we've been practicing since we we're very small. The first teacher tells you you played something wrong. You start to internalize that, and then you start to show it in some kind of gesture or, or facial expression or, or a mental flogging of yourself when you've played a wrong note. And, and this is very important to stop because that's not what you need on stage. That's, those are the things on stage that are actually going to cause the cognitive deficits or the memory slips, if you wish. This being caught up in your own uh, film instead of being in the present. And I don't want to interrupt your flow of going into the other oh, please. elements. But, <laughs> but the thing that's always been fascinating to me about exactly what you're describing is we don't really practice doing that on a day-to-day -day basis, because what we do practice doing on a day-to-day -day basis is listening critically to every little tiny detail of what it is that we're doing on our instrument. And so I think over time, I mean, if when you're a little kid, you don't really know how to listen critically to yourself very well, because your concept, your mental representations, as it were, just aren't well-developed enough to be able to understand all the nuances and details that as an older musician or more experienced musician, you start to be able to hear and pay attention to and notice. But yeah, I wonder, yeah, like how does one separate out the kind of listening critically that has to happen for effective learning versus mentally where one needs to be to be able to perform effectively without becoming overly analytic in that moment? Well, I'm going to say something that may sound a little bit radical, but I've, I do teach teachers how to teach. And I've been trying to say we need a new generation of teachers who do not spend all of their lesson time correcting mistakes. There are many reasons for that. As you know, I've worked with sports psychologists also about when feedback is necessary and so on. That's a whole topic in and of itself. But the whole mentality of a lesson, which is this 
critical, finding the mistake, erasing the mistake, preventing the mistake, all of this focus on mistakes. And even in the language of saying, okay, let's go quickly to the difficult passage. So I think we need a new generation where we say, let's go to the passage, let's give this passage a name, but maybe it's the challenge, or maybe this is the the storm, or maybe it is, this is the sunset, whatever it is for that particular piece, so that these particular measures aren't labeled with this negative connotation, which is exactly then what happens. We get triggered, we're performing, things are going well, and then the brain says, oh, it's only three more measures till the space, right? That note or that trill or whatever that is that we're afraid of. And we've trained that fear through practice by looking for the mistakes and feeling as if we are just victims of them instead of saying, okay, I'm going to make the piece mine. Now, there's another problem there too, which is, of course, for those of us who do not go on to be professional musicians, it's especially exaggerated this looking for perfection may seem off place and there's not enough teaching of how to enjoy music. To go back to what you were saying, this being, whether you call it being in the zone or enjoying the performance, that's that's not what we teach in lessons. We teach right and wrong. I know I taught myself and I still teach just at a different level, but that cannot be our reason for getting our salaries because we find mistakes. And yet that's what we perpetuate and have perpetuated for hundreds of years. Going to a lesson means somebody's going to correct us. This was a very wide answer to your question, but I really believe we have to change our mindset in lessons and during practice and then on stage to so that there's not so much a shift between, I'm in the practice room and I want to make sure I get everything right, so I'm going to work on everything that's difficult, to I'm going to work on the passages that are most challenging, I'm going to work on the easiest passages. The late and great jazz musician Walter Norris I used to say, there are no easy passages. And that's really fascinating, coming back, by the way, to aviation. When you do experiments in aviation psychology and you look at major events, a major event will overshadow what happened beforehand. It's the same thing with an auto accident. If you ask people what happened, they say the red car was speeding and hit the black car. And everything else shortly beforehand, because of the crash, has been basically erased And the moments right after the accident may be highlighted first, and then that drops off. Well, it's the same thing in music. If we've practiced the so-called difficult passages, the passage before has been in the shadow of that passage and has never really been thoroughly enjoyed or explored. And so I try to shift or I offer this way to practice where you look at everything in the piece and not just those passages that you feel need attention. Could you give an example or two maybe of how one would... Because that seems like such an obvious, but such a novel way of approaching teaching. Like, part of my job is to help you learn how to enjoy playing music. Like, that seems almost kind of foreign, right? Even though it makes sense that it ought to be a, a core part of teaching. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear like an example to be of what that might even look like. Well, one thing um, that I think is extremely important is not to, I'm going to go to, to teaching children. We teach children And then we know in June, there's going to be the big yearly recital. So we have lessons, lessons, lessons. And in the lessons, it's always about learning new repertoire, getting the right notes right, getting the rhythm right and whatever. And then a couple of weeks before the recital, it's, well, let's work on interpretation. And of course, it's number one, way too late. And number two, that mindset of I need to get things right is so ingrained. There's almost no room for listening to what I'm doing and interpreting it. 
And in fact, in my years of teaching, I also discovered that many teachers would always take, other teachers were taking new pieces for the recital. And so I started to take older pieces for the recital. So we would have months of, how do I play this piece? How do I interpret it? What are my options? How can I feel it? What is, what does practicing feel like when I'm not looking for errors and improving my technique? So I think this is a really, really important part of training future musicians to perform or even having preparing children for a recital that we do not have this major shift between getting it right and being corrected in the lesson and, oh, just forget that and go on stage. It just doesn't work. And yet all of us, I'm going to just point at you, I believe it's the same thing for you too. That's how we were brought up. That's how schools work too, right? You look at the paper that's been graded to see what was marked that was wrong. And even if the teacher wrote something on the, you know, like very good or something, well, you're still looking to see where it was wrong. So I believe we really need to to change that mindset. Maybe that's actually a good transition into the emotional components of stage fright. It's, of course, very dangerous to have a group of students or even a single student and talk about emotions if you're not a trained psychologist. And even though I am a music psychologist, I'm not a clinical psychologist. So I found a way to work around that in that I present a whole slew of topics for students to think about or for musicians to think about that involve emotions. I ask them to think back to where do these does the self-criticism come from? Does it come from my motivation to play where I'm dependent on feedback from the outside? Am I you know, we have these wonderful ears that measure applause. We, we can basically, it's like a decibel meter, you know, was it enthusiastic? Was it long? Was it loud? Was it fast? Was it slow? We're always taking in this feedback. So I ask students to think about, am I doing this because I, I feel insecure and I need feedback from the outside world? Or am I doing this because I enjoy the music and I just want to share that with others? I ask them to think about, there's a whole cluster of topics that are extremely important, And I touched on this just briefly earlier, and that is we've been training since early childhood. I mean, growing up in a family, you're training your role in that family. And God forbid you have a parent who's a musician. You are constantly being measured against that musician. And you have your role because you're the child. And where does the transition happen where, no, I'm not a child anymore. I may be as good or even better than the adults of the family. Or maybe you're the the smallest child of five in the family and your role has been to play the clown and suddenly you're supposed to go on stage and be the big diva, right? And all eyes are on you and you're supposed to be excel at something and yet you've been practicing this role of I'm the smallest one in the family, I'm the youngest one, I'm the one that gets laughed at or not taken seriously. And of course, all of the roles that we play in the family, we also find in the orchestra, in our relationships with teachers, in our relationships in ensembles with other musicians. And to break out of that mold, as I mentioned earlier, we actually need a vision of success. We have to take time to imagine what it would be like to take that risk. And I'm, I'm saying that specifically, to take that risk, th- that risk, and even to enjoy the conflict that I'm creating when I play well. Too much of our behavior is based on planning the escape route. What is going to be my excuse if it doesn't go well? What am I going to say if it's mediocre? What happens if I don't connect to the audience? I mean, I could fill a whole podcast with the thoughts that we have. And yet, how much time do we spend thinking about 
well, I'm really going to transport this music to the audience. I'm going to enjoy it. They are going to enjoy it. And we will be in this together. So these are just a few of these, these ideas, but especially to examine what role have I been playing for however old I am, 40, 50 years of my life. I've been playing this role that I'm, I'm pretty good, but I never really am so exceptional that I risk losing friends or that I risk others criticizing me in a different way than they usually do. And I, I feel that's extremely important to, to imagine and to think about. And of course, as I was mentioning before, there's a whole range of emotions that we have that are, of course, things we've been building up during our practice, thoughts that we've had. And it's so important to say, okay, but I don't need all of those clouds on my horizon. I want to have a sunny day on stage. I want to clear that out. I want to take these risks, risks in the sense of, I can do better. I can change. So that's those are some of the topics that I deal with with the emotional component. And of course, there are other things that one could talk about, but that's sort of the the essence in a nutshell. Does this speak to the need to practice taking risks or engaging in some sort of visualization that includes the emotional component in advance? Or like, what would that look like in advance of a performance? The whole topic of deliberate practice and uh, desirable difficulties, which is a term that Robert Bjork and Elizabeth Bjork at UCLA have coined in psychology, which is very applicable here. That may be too much of a tangent to completely encompass right now, but let me just say that I do believe that good practice means going beyond your comfort zone. Good practice means testing something new, never feeling as if you've reached it, never feeling as if you've gotten to the spot and you just need to maintain the peace. No, good practice means every day I'm testing my own boundaries. I'm trying something new and I'm, and I'm going out and risking something in the practice room so that everything will feel comfortable on stage. That's the shortest version I can give you of an answer to that question, because we would otherwise get into practice strategies, which is, of course, a whole other can of worms, which is extremely fascinating. But I really think that it's important that we stop thinking that expertise is just the top of the mountain. And once we're up there, we have a great view. It's like the Sisyphus myth, you know, we are constantly rolling a, a stone up higher and up higher and up higher and starting over again and, and going beyond. Which was a little bit disappointing for me to discover when I, you know, I got like my second year of grad school. I was like, why am I not close to this place that I thought I would get to where then I've arrived? And I started to realize, oh, wait, it's like going to find the end of the rainbow. Like it's always a little bit further out, yeah. which and eventually I came to embrace and see as, as being one of the great things about being able to be involved in something where that was the case instead of some other things in life where like you get there and it's like, okay, I've, I've done it now. What? Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, but, but it can be a, a, a difficult thing. I think at some point to realize. So I do want to come back to the deliberate practice and practice strategies and so forth, but I don't want to leave the, the behavioral component out of the equation before we go there. I think that's uh, going to work out for just fine because the behavioral component is actually my favorite component and it does lead to deliberate practice. So we're doing just fine on our path that we have a sort of a thread going through this, the golden thread through our conversation. When I started studying the behavioral component and looking for evidence about what that is and what it isn't, I discovered that in terms of music, many people, researchers were looking at the behavioral component as being 
does he spend a lot of time on stage adjusting the music stand or is she uh, pulling on her hair before she starts to play? You know, this kind of behavior. And yet when you zoom out and you start to take a larger look at this, you discover some really interesting things about behavior. And let me go to an analogy that I like to take from Shakespeare. You know, we always say to be or not to be, that is the question. Well, with musicians, it's to practice or not to practice. And the funny thing is that everybody, probably people listening to this podcast, uh, people who are musicians, people who are non-musicians, they think that that's what we do. That's our job. We practice. And yet, if you're talking to a good friend who's also a musician and you ask them, then they will admit that there are lots of times where they may practice, but they're not practicing what they should be practicing, or they're not practicing the pieces that are on the concert program that's coming up, or they found all kinds of reasons, or they're in that terrible whirlwind of trying to make decisions about what to work on and what not to work on. And, and to let me go back to that idea of zooming out and going from the bird's eye view and saying, okay, what's happening here? What's happening here is that we are all victims of our own ego protection devices, right? Our ego is so strong in, I need to make sure that nothing bad happens to me, that our ego is consciously and unconsciously, mostly unconsciously saying, you know, let's not practice 100% everything, of everything we know we could do because then we'll be completely exposed on stage. So if I really do all of these smart things I've learned through the Bulletproof Musician and some of these great teachers I've had, and I, and I really put in the hours and I really face all of these issues and I create new challenges for myself and practicing is, is interesting and creative and productive and everything is perfect and then I go on stage, what then? Right? So nobody does that. And in fact, you, people will admit to various degrees that they would not want to do that, you know, that that's dangerous or something like that. But what we're doing is we're undermining our own self because we are allowing our, I'm just going to speak of it, just say our ego, we're allowing our ego to spend a lot of energy preparing for something less than perfect. So we want to have somebody or something to blame. There was a study done ages ago with Olympic swimmers, swimmers on the Olympic team in Florida. And I remember it was fascinating. Two months before the Olympics, 80% of them got sick. They couldn't go in the water. And this is something that they call self-handicapping. So you can't go in the water. They all got well in time. They all did some swimming before the, the event. And now imagine them standing on the edge of the swimming pool, just waiting for the gunshot or whatever it is to go off so they can jump in. Their brain is going, well, I'm going to do my best today, but I was sick recently, so I'm not really responsible for my own performance, right? And there's a whole slew of examples in public life where you can find people who have admitted to this strategy. And I say to my students and the people who take part in my workshops, we have to get beyond that and start to say, self-handicapping is something that I can play with. I can ask myself, do I really need to clean my apartment right now? Or would it be better if I just sat in an armchair and did some mental practice and went through the program one more time? Am I on edge and am I likely to pick a fight with the people I love right before a performance so that I can get out some of that excess steam or something like this? Or am I able to recognize that sort of aggressiveness and this, that edginess as part of my body coping with the experience of adrenaline and excitement? 
recognizing that and saying some relaxation, some avoidance of practice, and especially if it's practice that I'm playing through the program to see where it goes wrong, right? Some of that is is healthy, but not all of it is healthy. And I need to start saying to myself, how many times am I distracting myself from the work that I need to do because I'm preparing an excuse if things go wrong? And that is my link back to deliberate practice. So let me just tell you one little story. When I left the university in Graz and took on the job in Munich, there was a transition period. I started in Munich in March, and I knew that in June I was going to be performing in a live, it was a radio broadcast, and I was going to be performing in Vienna. It wasn't a whole program, but it was still, it was an important event, and I wanted to do my best. But I had no instrument there, except the, there was a room with Clavinovas next to my office, my my new uh, Steinway grand piano hadn't been delivered yet. And I was working nonstop because it was a new university, new people, new everything. And so the only time I had left to practice was between 11 and midnight in the evening. So I took my own medicine and I said, okay, I'm only going to practice deliberately. And I'm going to keep a practice log. And I'm going to come up with desirable difficulties. I'm going to come up with challenges for myself so that I'm always practicing something that I don't know what I can do, where I'm testing out my limits, but I'm not running through the piece. In fact, I, I said, I don't have time to run through the pieces. I'm just going to come up with a new idea, come up with a challenge, play the piece. Good, I'm a pianist. So play the piece further apart in the octaves, hands crossed, without the third finger, transposing the piece. I came up with all kinds of ideas and I actually wrote them down. And I had this one hour of concentrated practice, only creating new challenges and only creative practice. I have that concert on DVD. I've never been that secure. So instead of saying, that's my excuse, I don't have an instrument, I only have an hour to practice, I'm tired, it's evening, I'm not even a night person, I said, let me make the best out of it. And that's what I think needs to happen with every musician in everyday life and not just when they're up against adverse circumstances. We need to say, what I'm doing in the practice room should be enjoyable in the sense that I'm using my brain to come up with new assignments. And it shouldn't be the routine of, yeah, I'm going to practice more and put in the hours and I'm going to play through this piece. And that, of course, uh, relates to the study that you read before you contacted me, where we found out that musicians who practice uh, routinely and put in the time and rehearse, rehearse, rehearse with no other goal other than to make it better, achieve less and actually play much more poorly to innocent and unknown blind reviewers than those who are coming up with new challenges and coming up with innovative ways to practice. That is a perfect transition. This is where I was hoping it would go. So it's awesome that you did that on your own. Um, I wonder if we could transition real quick to that 2018 study with, with Margaret Osborne and Gary McPherson, where, because one thing that kind of blew my mind when I came across it was this idea that we are not actually very good at evaluating or judging whether we're learning effectively or not. Mm -hmm. And the rapid improvement that we often experience when we're doing rote repetition or mindless repetition, it's very misleading in terms of how much of that improvement is actually going to be retained in the long term. And it seemed in your study that this is one of the things that you discovered. And, uh, and it seems to overlap a little bit too with the idea that, you know, even if we did know whether we were learning effectively or not, like there's a part of us that that hesitates to go all in. 
to some things that are not just more challenging, but also would give us fewer excuses mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day. So yeah, I would, I would love for you to, to describe a little bit what you guys found in that study and what you did. Uh, sure. Let me just give you one piece of background information. That is that, especially in sports psychology, the late Richard Schmidt was, was a great leader in this field with his uh, books on motor learning. Richard Schmidt was the first one to say, there's a difference between the momentary performance, so the achievement I have in the moment, the how good is it right now, and more uh, long-term learning. And that we actually cannot measure long-term learning in the moment. We can only see, I've done the work, and now let's see two weeks later, have I retained that? Which is going back to what you were saying. So, But yet, we live in a society where we're always evaluating, what did I just do? How was that? We're not grading or commenting on things as if this was the path towards the future, and this is just one step forward. We're saying, ah, I'm not there yet. And fascinating, and I'll try to stay on, on track with that. So, so the one thing is that when musicians have a practice session and we asked musicians, we didn't tell them what to practice, we didn't tell them how to practice, we didn't tell them how long to practice, we just asked them to evaluate how they felt their practice was going in terms of did they do what they were planning, how difficult were the strategies that they adapted, were they easy to adapt, hard to adapt, were they effective, were they not effective? And this momentary success was blinding to many of these musicians because they felt like, well, I've practiced for 20 minutes this same Chopin etude and it's sounding better now. Whereas when we listened and the uh, jurors listened to the recordings, it was 20 minutes of repetition where you couldn't even tell that it was becoming better. You couldn't even tell what was the focus of the practice or what was the reason for repetition. And by the way, there's a series of videos that I'm allowed to use when I show this to audiences that are just fascinating to watch this, to listen into somebody else's practice and to see how there's one, one example I have where there's a buildup of tension that leads this musician later to just shake out his hands because he keeps trying, 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 but it's not even evident to you as a listener what his goal is or what it was even that he was trying to improve. So, and then we have the other kind of musician that was pretty much those who did and those who didn't. We had another, another group of musicians who were constantly trying a different articulation. They were in the sense of desirable difficulties. They were playing lying down on their backs to see whether they could still get a good sound. They were stretching their own technical skills. There was one, I had one, this one wonderful example of an organist and she was working on a piece. And of course, organists, for me as a pianist, it's already amazing how many, you know, extremities are working at the same time. And she added to that, she, she spoke of a, a uh, the, the words to a, a German folk song while she was playing something in 5-4 time. And it sounds crazy, and you can't really tell what she's doing, but when she stopped speaking, suddenly the 5-4 time was smooth. She had created an extra challenge for herself that was allowing her to feel the rhythm in a way that she hadn't felt it before. However, at the end of her practice session, she said, well, it was a new strategy, but I don't think it was very effective, because she couldn't see that she had laid the grounds for long-term learning that was much more secure than if she had just repeated it or taken hands and feet apart, whatever. So the study was, in in that sense, was a real surprise to us because there was such a discrepancy. And it was, uh, I'm sure you saw the, the graph, it was a real, an algorithmic comparison between those who said, well, I'm not really sure I achieved much. But when they did this 
desirable difficulty creative practice further away from repetition and from the norm, the effects even for the jurors listening to the end of the practice session were much more striking, were much more positive than those who had been stuck in the grind of repetition. I just have to get this out because it's one of my favorite word games. You know, I like to show a slide that shows the word rehearse. And then I separate it out and say, yes, if you just repeat, 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 which is the definition of rehearse, it comes from farming, going over and over again, the same field to have ever deeper grooves with your plow. And I said, well, if that's your idea, you are actually using a hearse and taking your piece to the grave because you are not getting further. You are engraving the motor patterns that you have. You're saving them to a part of your brain that can only be pulled up as a indefinite sort of global blob of information instead of having a differentiated piece of uh, differentiation in the piece in what you're storing so that you have all of the different components and all of the possibilities to actually play it louder or slower on stage when the acoustics in the hall are different. And I don't have to tell you, every hall is different. Every audience is different. Every moment is different. Every day is different on stage. So we need that flexibility. And I wonder if this even speaks to the phrase that you used very early on today when we started chatting about enjoying the time up there, right? When you're flying, you want to enjoy the time up there. When you're performing, ideally, you enjoy the time that you're up on stage. And it would seem that this type of practice would not only make for maybe a more effortful practice session, but a more gratifying and creatively satisfying and meaningful practice session as well, which presumably would also translate into being able to have a little more fun and enjoy oneself in performance as well. Right. And I'm sure that you also saw that I've worked with Gabriela Wolf, who's a sports psychologist at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada, and University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she is a specialist on attentional focus. And this is the answer to what you just said, basically. The idea is that when I'm on stage, I need to focus on the effects of what I'm doing and not on the small details. The moment that I shift my attention away from, I'm hearing it, as you write, uh, I'm in the zone, and I go back to, oh, I better control this, it better be perfect. Even if it's out of a, uh, from a good place where you say, oh, gee, this has been going well, let me make sure it stays that way. You know, in that moment, I shift gears and I go from, I'm enjoying the music, I'm hearing the music, I'm sending, I'm, I'm broadcasting the music, to I better control what I'm doing. I'm going to be back in my body. I'm going back to the physiological component of what am I doing? Which finger is going where? And of course, you start to tumble in that moment, because uh, anybody who tries to think about how to tie shoelaces uh, will not be able to do it. You have to do it in that moment. I wonder if you can speak to that 2019 study that I think you're referencing, and the idea of the difference between an external focus of attention versus an internal focus, and, and even degree of externality. I don't know if that's a, in a phrase, I'm just making it up, but you know, the degree to which our focus is you know, more distal or more proximal, even at the external level. And what you guys found that that seemed really, again, tied to this idea of having more fun and enjoying oneself more when you're up there. Mm -hmm. Let me just put it this way. This, this study, we actually repeated a total of four times before we got it right, in the sense of before the data was clean enough that we were able to, that the musical examples were short enough that we knew that the reviewers were listening to the same thing. That's a whole other topic, of course. How do we rate music? 
the first times we did it, we had longer pieces. And then the problem was one juror was, was grading the performance on how many notes were perfect. The other one was the overall picture. Somebody else would get caught up because there was some bad intonation in the fourth measure, but the you know, 150 measures after that were just perfect. So it took a lot of tweaking till we got to the point where we felt as if the data was representing what we wanted it to. But in every single case, when we asked musicians in the, it was a concert atmosphere, but yes, it was our lab, where we had a small audience and we tried to create the excitement of a performance and we asked them to play the piece multiple times. One time just, we said it's just to set the microphones up, that was sort of our control. And then Randomize, of course, we asked them to play with the internal f- uh, focus, meaning we told them, uh, you're going to be graded on the perfection of this. Make sure that you pay attention, that every note is crisp and clear, and that you're doing everything right. This is about the accuracy of your performance. That was the internal control condition. Then we had the external control condition that was, you're going to be rated on your musicality and how you reach the audience. And think about the effects of your music and keep focused on what the composer wanted to express. And then we had another condition, which was hysterical, because we said, play the way you usually play. And we had so much feedback, because I did post-performance interviews with people. And it was just so fascinating, because they didn't know what they usually focused on. And some of them were completely nuts, because they didn't know what that was. And depending on when that came up in the list, they were more or less confused. And then also in the interviews, I had some really funny things, especially among jazz musicians. They said, because the most important thing was to make sure people followed the instructions. And when I asked jazz musicians, did you follow the instructions? Often they said, well, I refuse to focus on my fingers and the accuracy of my playing. That's just not how you make music. Whereas, as you can imagine, our classical musicians were, you know, just great little soldiers in line where they said, okay, this is going to be the, you know, the exam. I've had this since I was a little child that I get graded. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, so I had the Music Teachers Association exams once a year, you know, and I knew that was going to be a report card and there were going to be checks and, and crosses everywhere, depending on how I played. So it was totally fascinating in that respect, independent of the results we had. And in the results we had for the blind reviewers, it was totally obvious that the trials where they had focused on the effects of the music were much better performances than those where they tried to be perfect. So internal being where they're focused on like the minutia of technical mechanics of playing their instrument, you know, the fingers, what's mm-hmm. my thumb doing and bow control and so forth, where as external being really focused more on the goal of their body movements, you know, hoping they can produce a certain kind of sound and focusing on how that fills the space and, and so forth. And maybe you already said this and I just missed it when I was thinking about something else, but was there any sense of the musician's enjoying those performances more where they're focused on communicating to the audience and focused on sound as opposed to their own internal mechanics? Well, they definitely, we had them rate their own performances. And yes, the ratings of those performances were, were much higher, much better. And let me sort of tie this back to our airplane analogy. The important thing when I'm flying high and I'm in the zone or I'm external focused and I'm performing, I'm in a I like to describe it as sort of an attentional focus bandwidth where there are differences with some levels of control, some levels of uh, influence, as I said, because the acoustics in the hall could be different. Or if you're playing with other musicians, of course, you have to react to them. So it's not just letting go. I'm very careful. I do not use the word flow because 
it's not possible. I don't believe it's possible to just flow if you're in the middle of a performance. You're actually, it's hard work. So you're in this bandwidth of external focus and yet you're still working on your performance without sabotaging yourself. And then there's a bandwidth where because you want to be perfect and because you believe that there's a reason uh, that the piece needs more attention in this particular measure or because you've built that up as now's the difficult passage, we tend to leave that zone and we go back down to this sort of basic nuts and bolts level, uh, which we may not have been at that level for years. We may not have looked into the score for years. We may not have uh, taken a, a good hard look at what we are actually doing. And even literally, we may have not looked at that particular hand in a long time because we've just been making music. And when that happens on stage, that I shift my focus away from the music, the composer's intention, the audience, and come back to the sort of visceral level of what am I actually doing here? The cogs get stuck because I'm interrupting this motor pattern that, that is still can still be influenced, but I'm interrupting it with a total different mindset. And so that's, of course, a, a practice strategy to say to musicians, it's all well and good to, to practice external, but you also have to make sure that you practice enough of the internal stuff that you go back, even if you've been playing the piece for years, and you make sure that your basis, your foundation is so fixed in cement that even if something like that happens to you, you can quickly bounce back up because you know that, you, that it's there. My husband has a, a, a very good friend who is an actor, a Swiss actor, and he once said to me, when you're on stage as an actor, the next line just has to be there. You can't think ahead to the next line because you won't be able to emote in the moment that you're doing. And I believe that's the same thing for us. We have to have reached that level of performance security in our practice that we can just trust that the next measure is going to be there, that the movements are going to be smooth, and that I take my attention away from my own body and my own ego and project it out through the music to the outer world. Would that be the way in which the performance focus or external focus complements or intersects in some way with deliberate practice and self-regulated learning, which my impression is that that does at some point involve some understanding of the underlying mechanics of a skill and understanding, oh, my thumb is too tight here. I need to practice making it more of a habit to release when I shift into this position and so forth. I wonder if you can speak to how those those concepts might interact with one another or, or relate. Well, let me go back to the beginning of our interview and say, if I'm looking at a performance afterwards and I'm saying, here's a moment where there was some kind of slight near miss Right? And I start to ask myself, why was there a near miss? Was it a passage that's similar and I was about to take the wrong exit? Or was it something that I haven't heard because it's an easy passage and I haven't given it enough attention? These are all moments where I can say, all right, what can I do in my practice to make sure that these blind spots aren't left unseen? And that is the basis of deliberate practice is to say, what are the challenges I can face for myself? What are the new assignments I can give myself so that I move on and that I move on in a way that's not threatening because I'm not trying to erase mistakes, but I'm trying to set new goals for myself. I think we did talk about this before, but it more and more, as we've talked, seems like recording oneself on some regular basis would seem to be a non-negotiable aspect of being able to do a lot of the things that it sounds like you're describing to prepare mm. for performance. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when um, when I was a child, recording meant 
you know, real to real and it was very, uh, difficult and you needed microphones and this. And, and now everybody has a smartphone, almost everybody has a smartphone and can record themselves in the, in the practice room. And I try to encourage and even require that sometimes that they take a good heart, listen to what they're doing when they're practicing. And so that they're not surprised by the external hearing that we have when we're on stage. Because at the latest, when you climb onto that stage or go onto the stage, depending on whether there are stairs involved or not, in that moment when you are in the spotlight, you have to be sure that you're hearing what the audience, as best you can, what the audience is hearing. And that's a different sort of listening. And the only way to reach that is, of course, through recording yourself. Absolutely. And that, of course, is one of the goals that I set myself when I'm doing deliberate practices. I say, okay, I'm going to record this and then I'm going to listen to it with respect to rhythmic stability or with respect to variations in articulation, not just I'm going to listen and hear if it's right or wrong. So even being very specific with uh, what your listening intentions are, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks also to that 2018 study where if I remember correctly, it seemed like a lot of the participants weren't especially specific about what their practice intentions and goals were. They just wanted to sound better. Mm-hmm, exactly. I love giving, whether it's professionals, and I've done this with with fellow teachers and, and professors, or whether it's musicians or small children, I love giving them the uh, the assignment of come up with three short-term goals that you can achieve within a 10-minute practice session. And I tell you, adults flop at this. Because when I ask them for a goal, goal always means improve intonation, improve flexibility, be more expressive. And I say those are lifetime goals. That's coming back to our picture of you never reach it, you're always reaching further. And when I say, no, I mean something really specific, something that you can achieve today, something that is doable in 10 minutes. And I believe that that's a skill that we all can work on in saying, what is it that is an effective use of my time and what is such a specific assignment that I know when I've achieved it because as I'm sure you and your listeners know in that moment when I have that experience of oh I did what I said I was going to do I had success even if it's just a mini success even if it's just recording my own music and listening back to it the brain releases dopamine and the learning is improved and the body is happy and then you can go out and take that walk that you deserved. You can get the full transcript of this week's chat, plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog.